We are in the book of 1 Samuel, in chapter 17, if you want to turn there with us. Uh, we'll start a story, a familiar story, perhaps the most familiar story in all of our Bibles. David meets Goliath. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been uh, studying over the last month uh, the two kings that start the, uh, the regency of Israel. The, the first to reign in the uh, kingdom of Israel are a guy named Saul. Uh, he gets 40 years. And his uh, successor, a guy named David, uh, he gets 40 years as well. Uh, their, their reigns kind of overlap, and we're in that part of our story. Uh, Saul has been deposed because he was a bad king. Uh, David has been uh, brought out of anonymity as the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, uh, the eighth son. He's not meant to be the king. He's just chosen to be the king. Uh, and he's God's uh, heart choice. It's, uh, he's the man after his own heart, God says. Uh, so he loves the Lord, and, and the Lord loves and chooses him and has appointed him to be the next king of Israel. We saw his anointing at the beginning of chapter 16, uh, where the guy whose name uh, is the name of the book we're studying, Samuel the prophet, anoints David. Uh, we saw last week that he gets his first taste of the palace life as he's brought in to be basically uh, the Spotify that Saul needs to soothe his, uh, his uh, trembling spirit. And if you weren't here for those messages, they live online. Go watch them. We'd love to have you catch up with us. Uh, but we come today to this well-known story, the story of David and Goliath. Uh, most of our culture knows it because it gets thrown around sports all the time. David meets Goliath today on the gridiron. Uh, 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 certainly, uh, we've all witnessed it in various capacities throughout our lives, depending on how long those lives are. Uh, we may remember the Winter Olympics of 1980, right? Uh, the USA squad uh, in Lake Placid. Uh, defeating the, the Soviets uh, who had long reigned in ice hockey. Uh, do you believe in miracles? Al McGuire said, and I do, I do. And, uh, uh, but David slew Goliath that day. And so, uh, so to speak, uh, that's where most of our uh, notoriety or the notoriety of this story comes for in our culture. But there's so, so much more here. In fact, it's by far the, the, the longest story in the telling of David's life. 58 verses in chapter 17, just to cover this one fight between David and his adversary, Goliath. Uh, lots of detail given, uh, so much so that to preach all 58 verses in one sitting would take us until 5 o'clock tonight. So we're going to break it up a little bit. Is everybody okay with that? Everybody says? Amen. Yeah, that's what you say when a pastor says that. Yeah. Amen. We're going to go four weeks on this sucker. And, uh, sucker? Anyway, uh... <laughs> The third sermon. I'm, I'm losing it. Uh, this week we're going to talk about the fear. It's, it's where the story starts, the fear that Israel has for the giant Goliath. But then next week we're going to meet uh, David in the story, and he's the feist. Uh, have you ever used that word feist? Usually you use it as the adjective feisty. But did you know it came from an actual noun, a feist? This is so great. It's a, a small, ornery, mongrel dog. What a great picture of David in this story, this, uh, you know, this shepherd boy coming to the, to the you know, uh, front lines to visit his brothers who are in the army officially, and he basically volunteers to fight the giant. What a feist. Uh, and so uh, that'll be next week. Uh, we'll talk about the faith, which just, it, for, spoiler alert, this is, the, this is the theme under this story. It's not courage. Certainly courage is the result of David's faith, but it's David's faith that wins the fight. His faith in a God who goes before him. I mean, sure, he was talented as a slingsman. I don't know if that's the right word for that, but, uh, 
But God directed the stone. And it's David's faith in God. Now that overcomes the giant just as it is in our lives. Our faith in him is what gives us victory in any battle in life. Can I get an amen on that? That's true. And so finally, uh, the last week, we'll get to the fight, which is fun. Who doesn't like a good fight scene? So uh, fear, feist, faith, uh, faith, and fight. Uh, we're going to start here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 17, where all chapters start, verse 1. And uh, we're going to see that there's probably been some time that has gone by. You're not going to sense that in the first verses of this chapter. But if you read the whole thing, and please, extra credit this week, if you do, read all 58 verses of this story again. Read them to your kids. It's a great one for kids. Who remembers getting this one growing up? Anybody got this one? Yeah. So it's a great story for our children. But in the last part of this chapter, verses 55 to 58, Saul has this conversation with the general of his army at the time, a guy named Abner. He says, Abner, who was that kid? I'm paraphrasing, but he doesn't recognize, apparently, uh, this, this one who will succeed him, David. Now, scholars have tried to figure out how to reconcile the fact that in chapter 16, we meet David, he's playing his uh, harp for Saul, uh, and, and, and now, uh, as, as this battle uh, unfolds and as his victory is claimed over Goliath, Saul doesn't even remember the kid. Okay, if it's been a while since David, the middle schooler, started playing uh, his harp for Saul, and, and now he's, you know, uh, probably years later, uh, not many years, but at least five, six, he's a grown man now, still young, but a grown man. Uh, is it understandable that Saul would not recognize uh, someone, a subject from his kingdom, even if he had some interaction with him in his palace? I think so, because I can hardly recognize anybody uh, from church if they're not in church. Has anybody met me outside of here? Right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? Because I'll see you, and I'll be like, I know this person. I'm guessing it's from church, but I can't remember anything else beyond that. And you're so gracious to me when I say, I know, I know you. Tell me your name again, and you'll say your name, and we'll have a conversation. Um, I'm guessing that's what's happening with Saul here. You know, uh, David has probably, you know, over a course of maybe five, six, seven years, changed in his appearance. Last week I had a kid come up, kid I say, He's probably in his middle 30s now, but when I last met him, saw him, he was going to church here about 19 years ago, and he came back to church uh, last Sunday and met me in the front, and he said, don't you hate this? Guess who? I don't know. <laughs> you could be just about anybody, and, and he was just about anybody. Uh, his name was Aaron. Uh, I, I, once he said his name, and I started kind of peering through his longer hair and his huge beard, I was like, yeah, you're probably in there somewhere. Uh, but uh, yeah, whatever the case may be, um, Saul's going to end up not recognizing David, and I've covered that here. Let's begin in chapter 17, verse 1. So the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. No, duh. This has been happening all throughout 1 Samuel. The Philistines, uh, I didn't do the map in any of the other services, but here comes the map. Uh, this is the coast of Israel, right? We've got the Mediterranean Sea over here, all right? Uh, everything's happening down here in the southern region of, of uh, Israel at this time with uh, Saul and David and all this stuff. And the Philistines lived over here, right over here. And uh, they had come from the, the probably sailed across the, the Mediterranean Sea, settled on the western, yeah, the western side of Israel, and were constantly encroaching into Israel from this side. And so here's how uh, the story opens. They're doing that again. Uh, and the Philistines 
uh, were a problem for Saul, as they've always been a problem. In fact, one of the reasons that Saul was anointed king was so that he could handle up on these Philistines. Look what it says uh, like seven, eight chapters ago in chapter nine where Saul's about to be anointed. It says, uh, this is God speaking to Samuel, tomorrow at about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, that's Saul, and, uh, and you shall anoint him to be prince. He never called him king. Saul was always prince because God is king. All right. But I'll, you'll anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he shall save my people from the hand of the who? Yeah. First hundred days, here's your goal, Saul. Keep us out of the hand of the Philistines. And that's what continues to happen. If you read the story, you'll see they keep popping up, these pesky Philistines. So here they come again. Uh, the second half of verse 1 says that they gathered at a place called Sako, uh, which uh, belongs to Judah. So they've already encroached the border of Judah. They are in our the Israeli territory. It'd be like the Mexican uh, army invading Texas. I think they tried that once. Anyway, uh, uh, but uh, you know, it'd be something like that, that our homeland was being uh, you know, invaded, and so obviously the nation of Israel uh, summons its army. And uh, it says that in verse 2, I'm going to skip over those hard-to-pronounce words where they were. Uh, and in verse 2 it says, And Saul and the men of Israel gathered to meet the Philistines. And they encamped in a, in a place that uh, is down here called the Valley of Elah. And they drew up a line of battle against the Philistines. I know most of you are familiar with the story. Let's just keep going. Uh, and the Philistines stood on the other side, on a mountain that's on the other side of the Valley of Elah, north and south, Israel north, Philistines south. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and a valley was in between them. And, and, the, and the, at the very base of that valley was a, uh, it's called in, in Hebrew, a wadi. Everybody say wadi. It's a fun word. Uh, it was basically a dry creek riverbed, and as we move forward in the story, uh, David is going to run down to this dry creek riverbed and grab some rocks and hurl one into the middle of uh, uh, his adversary's uh, forehead. Um, it's, a, it's a great picture. I've actually been there. I don't have a picture. That'd be nice. I should have done that. But uh, uh, I stood in that dry creek riverbed in the valley of Elah. I grabbed my own five rocks. Everybody was encouraged to. I don't know if I got actually one of the five rocks Pretty sure I didn't, but uh, uh, that's where we see the scene unfold. Makes tactical sense that two armies would stand on either side of a valley. Uh, I'm not a military man, but I've watched a few movies. You want to fight from the high ground, not from the low ground. And so they both kind of posted up on high sides and waited for the other one to come up. And nobody moved for a long time until verse 4. The Philistines had been uh, using a different kind of warfare. Perhaps Israel wasn't as familiar with it, uh, but they would uh, basically send out their champion and fight the other army's champion, and this would be how we would, A, spare many lives, and B, resolve the conflict between the two armies. So here he comes, big, bad Goliath. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines, verse 4, a champion named Goliath of Gath. Here he comes. Uh, I'm pausing here just for one purpose. That word champion, everybody see that in English? It's, it's a, a, a great group of Hebrew words that I, I think I'm going to come back to over and over again as we study this passage for the next four weeks. Uh, this word champion is uh, three Hebrew words, ish, everybody say ish. It means man, all right? So Ishmael is ish, man, mael. Uh, ish, banahim, everybody say banahim. Bahainim means basically in between. So the word champion in Hebrew is literally the words man in between. What a great picture of what a champion is. Does that kind of describe it? Like we're over here, we need defending from what's over there, 
And in between us is the man in between. I hope you're picking up the parallels between David in this story and Jesus in ours. Everybody gets that, right? Every time you look at the cross and you think of our Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray you remember these Hebrew words, ish be naim. He is the man who stands between us and the penalty that we deserve for our sin. And he dies the death that we deserve, and he saves us from what we need saving from. He's our champion, the Ish Be-Nahim. This is Goliath, though, in our story, at least in this initial telling. He's the champion of the Philistines. And he is terrifying in his visage. Goliath looked scary. Uh, he uh, comes down off this hill and it says that there came out from the camp, in verse 4, uh, of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. We all know how tall that is, right? Everybody put your arm up like this. From here, touch your tip of your middle finger to here, your elbow, that's a cubit, okay? And then everybody give me the hang loose sign. From here, the tip of your thumb to here, the tip of your pinky is a span. So if you add up six of these and one of those, roughly nine and a half feet. That's a tall dude. Could he play center on your team, Tom? I think he could. Tom's a basketball coach. All right. Uh, yeah, uh, he's a big guy. Uh, I picture it kind of like a movie would display it, right? Uh, the, you know, you hear his steps. I mean, you couldn't actually, but you'd hear like the rumbling of the ground, right? And then the army of the Philistines would part, and it would, they would be up on this hill, and so, uh, uh, or what's his name, Goliath, would start coming up, uh, you know, up the mountain, and he would appear, and everybody like, all right, who's this bozo? But then he'd just keep coming, and all nine feet plus of him would uh, tower over the rest of the Philistines, right? And he'd walk down into the valley of Elah, and uh, far enough away that the archers of Israel couldn't hit him, but close enough that he could yell at him, and he would stand down there and uh, uh, offer his challenge, as we're going to read in a second. Terrifying. I mean, nine and a half feet tall. Everybody gets that we're bigger than we used to be, right, humans? Like, all you got to do is go to be, uh, back to a place that like, was built 100 years ago, like Fenway Park. I don't like sitting in the seats at Fenway Park. They weren't built for me. Uh, larger people exist now. And so, you know, back it up 3,000 years, we were even smaller then. And so nine and a half feet to the army, uh, no, whatever, whatever, the army of Israel uh, might be like 10, 12, 15 feet to us. I don't know what the ratios are, but this guy is immense. I stood next to Shaquille O'Neal in his rookie year of uh, NBA basketball, and I felt smaller than I've ever felt in my life. Big people are scary. You big people are scary. And Goliath was one of the biggest says that at verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze on his head. Uh, not common amongst warriors of that day. Not everybody had a helmet. Uh, if you read the story of uh, Israel in 1 Samuel, you'll, you'll see that the, hardly any of them had a sword. Uh, so to have helmets, um, uh, Goliath, it's a huge flex. He's got all the latest and greatest in, uh, in uh, you know, human warfare. He's got a helmet. He's, got, uh, uh, he's armed with a coat of mail, which is not like chain link mail from the from the you know, Middle Ages uh, in Europe, it's more like plates that would be sewn together. And so he basically have these, he has these metal plates that cover his whole torso. They even run down his legs. It says there uh, that he had bronze armor on his legs uh, and that his, I skipped something, the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. It's 100, maybe 125 to 150 pounds of armor. 
I don't know what your bench press is, uh, but Saul or Goliath, I keep messing up Saul and Goliath. Goliath was wearing what you could probably bench. Uh, He's got a a bronze armor on his legs, and Goliath has this, uh, it says javelin in the English Standard Version. Uh, Most of the scholars that I read this week think this is probably uh, his sword. It was a scimitar, which is an ancient sword. It's kind of got that curved blade on it, if you've ever seen like an old movie, and that would stick on his back. Uh, And and in addition, there would be a a shield back there so that when he finally got to -to hand-to-hand combat, he could draw his sword and pull his shield off and get ready to do whatever nasty stuff he had to do. Um, but uh, it says in verse 7, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. I know all of us, you know, we weave our own clothing. I know everybody here has to get home and do that right after this. Uh, probably some of us have never even seen a loom. Uh, but a loom is how they would uh, weave cloth back then. They would make the, the loom as big as they could. Bigger the loom, the faster you could make clothing and cloth. And so they would use these huge beams at the back of a loom, if you can picture that, that they would wrap their, their uh, uh, threads around, and, and it was just massive. And that's how, how uh, the writer here, uh, probably Samuel, describes the spear that Goliath carried. It'd be like one of our fence posts, like 10, 12 feet long, something that no uh, regular human could wrap their hand around, but the big guy could. And uh, this is how he's described Uh, It says that his spear's head weighed 600 shekels, that's 17 pounds at the end of a stick. And his shield bearer went before him. You said, wait a minute, I thought you said, Mark, his shield was on his back. Uh, Guys would fight, the really good guys, uh, they would fight with two shields. They'd have the up-close shield, which would be strapped to their back, and they'd haul it around and put it on their hand, be like a circle that you could kind of, you know, knock uh, swords away with. But then they'd have the big shield. If you've ever seen, you know, ancient armies fight, uh, many of the uh, the armies would carry these huge, almost body-sized shields so that when the archers would rain down their arrows, they could plant the shield in the ground and kind of duck in behind it. Uh, How big does a shield have to be for a nine-footer? Most scholars think it was probably like a four-by-eight sheet of plywood size. And so there was one dude in the army, his whole job was carry that shield, walk in front of Goliath, and whenever they started shooting arrows, kind of plant it in the ground, and then kind of, you know, tuck in behind the huge guy as he tucks in to be defended from the enemy's weaponry. Saul is a fortress on two legs. Saul. Goliath. (laughs) It's actually in my notes, Saul. I I was trying to be careful to read it. That's why I keep messing up. Hang on just a second. Uh, G-O-L-I-A-T-H. Here we go. Goliath was a, uh, uh, basically a fortress on two legs. And uh, he comes wandering out of the army of the Philistines. And he says the following things. Uh, he doesn't just look scary, he sounds scary. Uh, Goliath taunts Saul and his army. In uh, chapter 17, verse 8, he says, uh, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to drop for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? In essence, he's like, are we doing this? Seriously, we're going to stand up on the top of these hills and just stare at each other? He's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's ancient language for chicken. Anybody ever been called a chicken? Guys know what I'm talking about. No one likes to be called a chicken. I'm not a chicken. Yeah, you're a chicken. Chicken. Right? I also can tell you this, that a lot of times words are a warrior's undoing. Like if someone can talk some mess, they can get in your head. 
Like, uh, that's like the mission of many athletes is just to undo a person mentally before they ever play them physically. Just talk smack. And uh, Goliath was a smack talker uh, par excellence. So he taunts them, and then he challenges them. He gives them a very concrete this, not that challenge. He says, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then he will be, or we will be, your servants, Israel. But if I prevail against you and your champion and I kill him, then you guys, Israel, shall be our servants and serve us. Finally, he defies the God of Israel. And this is where I need to explain this. The the armies of this time, um, all of them, near ancient uh, uh, history, uh, or near east ancient history, uh, shows us that everybody who fought, fought believing that their God would give them the victory. So if you go back in the story of 1 Samuel, the Philistines uh, are famous for uh, capturing the Ark of the Covenant of God. Uh, the sons of Eli basically thought, if, if we're going to have this fight, we need to have God go with us. And they drag the Ark of the Covenant out into this one fight with the Philistines. And, uh, and they lose terribly because they were unholy dudes. You can go back and read it. It's the first few chapters. Uh, but the Ark of the Covenant is taken into Philistine custody. And it doesn't go well for the Philistines. Lots of things as God uh, judges them for stealing uh, Israel's special uh, emblem of his presence. Uh, but all of the armies believed that if they prevailed in a battle, it's because our God was bigger than your God. And our God defeated your God. So it's no wonder as uh, Goliath's ramping up his, his rhetoric, as he's challenging Israel, uh, not just Saul and his army, uh, but all of Israel, including its God. He says one more time in verse 10, I defy the ranks, and that's inclusive language. All y'all, Saul, your soldiers, and the God that you serve, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me someone to fight, and let's get this thing done. So challenge issued, and Israel stands up on its side of the mountain, of the valley, and and. and, and And this is what happens. Saul says, this is enough. I'm going to go take this guy on myself. Is that what happened in your Bibles? No. And then someone in the army, maybe it was Eliab, David's brother, who was really tall himself. He's like, "This, this, this, no more of these shenanigans. This goon has to be dealt with. And so Eliab, or someone tall like him, walks down out of the ranks of Israel and fights him. Is that what happens in your Bible? No. What happens in your Bible is what happens with us so often. When we face uh, an unknown and unseen before challenge, uh, we get scared. And that's exactly what happened here. God's people, namely Saul and his army, got really scared. It says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. These Hebrew words are too hard to even try to pronounce. But can I just tell you what they mean? The word dismayed here means shattered. Was used in pottery, right? Like if you dropped a big pot from a high, a high spot, uh, it was going to just blow up into a whole bunch of pieces. And essentially, that's what happens when the uh, army of Israel and Saul, their leader, see Goliath walk out of the Philistines. They're shattered. Dismay doesn't do it justice. They're like frozen by their freakout. And that leads to this next idea. They were greatly afraid. Greatly afraid is this idea that we have uh, in our English uh, of of just greatly anxious, just um, uh, trembling as they move forward. Initial sight, shattered. 
moving forward, anxious, greatly afraid. I uh, was talking to Eleanor about this last night. She came and listened to me. I, I rewrote the whole sermon this morning, by the way, so if it doesn't make sense. Anyway, uh, 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 but she and I were talking about this. And, and we both agree this is probably true. The, the, the soldiers up on the hill with Israel, they'd seen fights before. It wasn't their first battle. Like Saul, we got, a, we got like the whole record of 1 Samuel telling us that Saul has won fight after fight after fight. They just come from, in recent history, a huge defeat of the Amalekites, right? And that's what Saul blew and, and didn't you know, obey God in. But, uh, but still, he was victorious. It wasn't like they hadn't had a fight before. These weren't like fresh recruits, we can assume. And so what was it in this situation that led them to this reaction? Well, this guy was really big, and it wasn't like all of us going against him. It was just one of us that was going to be selected to go face the champion of the Philistines. Uh, they looked around, and they saw that there wasn't anybody on their side that could take this one guy. And so that left them all in this position of like, uh, uh, they've never experienced it before. We don't know how to handle this. At least that's what their brains were telling them. Uh, we all run into the big giants from time to time, don't we? I mean, lots of, lots of struggles and challenges in life, things that we have to handle up on. Uh, by God's grace, he helps us with the smaller things. But then every once in a while, the big stuff comes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like I'm walking in life right now with uh, folks who have lost a loved one, a spouse, uh, a parent. Uh, some uh, have lost a child. And nothing prepares you for that experience. There's, there's, you know, certainly people who can relate on some level, but nothing will get you ready for having to face that in life. I've talk, I talk a lot with folks uh, who are experiencing not physical or literal death, but relational death. I can't tell you how many times I've walked with someone as they've, uh, you know, uh, gone through a divorce that was not of their choosing. My sister's one of them. She was married to her husband for over 25 years, and a few years ago, he just decided not to be married anymore. It wasn't that simple. Okay, but it, that's in the end game, that's what it was, right? And she's on this side of that choice trying to figure this out. And it's a giant bigger than she's ever faced before. And she'll tell you, good days and bad, right? No, but what about this, the spiritual death of someone? You've heard me detail over and over again how you know, a couple of our kids that just kind of aren't walking with Jesus right now. And for Eleanor and I, that's been our giant. Uh, and she was talking to me last night about this, and she's like, you, you handle this stuff all the time with people. I mean, yeah, but they're not my DNA. Like, I love you guys, and sorry when your kids go astray, or when you personally go astray, and I got all kinds of stuff to say for you, but I don't have to have Christmas with you guys, right? It's just different, and it's bigger than the other things that I face in life. As these guys see this giant, um, their reaction is fear. And fear's no good in these situations. Can we all agree? First of all, fear's no good because it immobilizes the frightened. You know, who hasn't seen you know, a superhero movie where some innocent bystander is caught in between the hero and the, you know, the villain, and they're just kind of like, ah, and the hero, before he can fight the villain, has to go save this innocent bystander and take them to safety. Um, that, that's, that's where fear leaves us. Uh, just immobile, unable to act. That's why it's no good. Fear also erases the memory of those feeling it. it. 
fear erases the memory of the frightened. Uh, we know that because uh, we, we see this reaction in Israel despite the fact that over and over again in Israel's story, God has overcome insurmountable odds in providing for their uh, moving forward as a nation. Right? But in the moment of fear, when it strikes, it's like someone erases the hard drive. And there's just nothing there anymore. And you can't remember what we sing as a church. That we've seen God move mountains and we believe that God will do it again. Right? He made a way when there was no way and we believe that God will do it again. But in those moments where fear takes hold of us, it's just like, I can't remember those lyrics. I can't remember those truths. Do I need to go through some of them for you? In the history of Israel, Moses leads a group of slaves to the shores of the Red Sea. Impossible! But God made a way, and they got through it. In the story of the conquest, God leads Joshua and the armies of Israel to Jericho, and he tells them, walk around six times on the seventh day, walk seven. And God brings the walls down. I mean, these guys have built monuments to these stories. They tell them to their kids growing up, like we tell our stories to our kids. But in this moment, a whole army of them. Even in the story of 1 Samuel itself, the son of Saul, perhaps there that day, but feeling the same fear apparently. Uh, Jonathan had charged up in chapter 14, just a few chapters ago, he charged up a hill and took on a whole company of Philistine soldiers. By himself, him and his armor bearer. You can read about it, even if you want to right now, if you're bored. Go ahead. And in their recent history, they have evidence of God's ability to prevail in impossible situations. But fear, gone. So can we all agree, fear's no good? We have to make a different choice. And so that's where I want to finish today. I want to finish with Scripture's answer to this question. How do we conquer fear? And in the context of what we're reading here in the story of David and Goliath, how do we face our giants? How does it happen? You're going to hear this for the next four weeks. It's faith. Faith in God that overcomes the fear of life, whatever that fear might be. Uh, I think it's only fitting that on a day we uh, study probably the most commonly known story about David and his physical, earthly life, we go to his most commonly known psalm in the book of the Psalms uh, that uh, we hear over and over again in Psalm 23. I know many of you can quote this from memory. I'm glad that you can because in Psalm 23, we have the answer to the question, how do we conquer fear? We put our faith in the good shepherd and we trust him for what we lack in life. So we're going to finish in Psalm 23 and let me just roll through what we learned there. It says, as Psalm, uh, oh, I should say this. David probably writes this later in his life. It's a psalm of reflection. So Goliath is in the rear view. Uh, uh, his, his years in, in, uh, in exile, as we get to those stories in the chapters to come, it's in the rear view. Uh, battle after battle and victory after victory, it's in his rear view. He's reflecting on all the ways that God has been his shepherd. Uh, and he's also an authority on the job. He was a shepherd. And so it's no wonder that he chooses this descriptor of the God who helps him overcome his fears. He says this, the Lord is my shepherd and so I shall not want. 
There's just nothing in the world that I need. If God is with me, if God is for me, nothing can be against me. I know these are, listen, look at me. I know some of you are checking out. You're like, I know this one. I already know this one, Mark. Do you? Because you can know about something and not know it to the point that you use it in life, right? So pay attention. Don't be checking out on your pastor right now. I got 10 minutes. Stay with me. (laughs) The Lord is my shepherd. So I don't have any needs. There's nothing that I should want. As I walk in life with God, it's like walking with your mom as a kid. The purse has everything you need, right? Like if you blow snot chunks after sneezing, out comes the Kleenex. Who remembers? Anybody remember? If you're hungry, out comes the Lifesavers. Where did those go? Right? I mean, do they even make them anymore? Lifesavers. They just kept me alive as a child, right? Uh, if you've got a headache, my mom had the, the little baby aspirin bottle with the pink pills. Are those still around? I don't even know. If you had any need, mom could provide it. Verse 2 says this, my good shepherd, my shepherd makes me lie down. I'm a sheep, David says, and my shepherd makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. You've probably read this before. You understand the shepherd's job is to make sure the sheep are nourished. They have what they need, and this is how uh, the good shepherd, the Lord being my shepherd, uh, makes it so I don't have any wants. He leads me. Now, the key here is you've got to follow him. If you're going to overcome your fears, you have to, by faith, follow what God has commanded in his scripture. And he'll lead you to the green pastures and the still waters that await you as you put your faith in him. But if you choose not to follow, just be prepared for whatever you get. I love watching football. Football season is in full force right now. And uh, I love watching, especially when it's the other team, the one that I'm not rooting for, I I love watching broken plays. Like broken running plays where the entire team knows that the run is going to go to the left, but the running back got the sequence of numbers and the call mixed up in his head. And so he takes the ball and starts running to the right. And all of his help is this way, but he has made the choice to go this way, and he is about to get plastered. Has anybody seen this play? I probably shouldn't enjoy it as much as I do, but I do. (laughs) And it's what happens when you refuse to follow. No green pastures, no still waters, just a bunch of ugly guys trying to kill you. That's all that is. It says here, verse 3, that he restores my soul. Uh, I pray that today God is restoring your soul. Everybody gets what that is. In some other translation, it says God rejuvenates me, he refreshes me, he gives me hope. Uh, I find that uh, right on time, in, in, in just the moments where I need it, God just gives me a little pick-me-up. It's a little boost. So I'm sitting in my office on Monday, and a text comes across my phone. It's my oldest son, Ben. I've been praying for Ben to find and follow Jesus again in his life for too long. He texts me and he says, hey, Dad, uh, I've just gotten a job working here at your church. And that's true. He, 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 he's going through school and he needs to support himself. And so I told him that there's a, a guitar teaching job here at our, our church with our school of music. And if you want to just sign up to be a guitar teacher, maybe Darnesha will hire you. And Darnesha did. Thank you, Dee. And, uh, and so Ben's now employed by our church. I think that's a great first step. He's got a cool boss, right? And she loves Jesus, Right. Okay, but that's just the beginning, so that started it, right? And so he, called, he texted me on Monday, and he's like, hey, I know you do this Saturday night service, and I'd love to drum up some more business for these guitar lessons. How about if I come and play 
uh, you know, backup to you as you lead, uh, you know, your songs on Saturday night, and then maybe you can give me a plug. And my first thought was like, you don't even believe the stuff that we're singing. And my second thought was, you just got done preaching that if you have the Spirit of God in you, try to be around the people who don't as much as possible so that the Spirit of God can flow from you to them. And so then I was like, heck yeah. And so for the first time, that wasn't an Easter or a Christmas, my kid came to church. He didn't just come to church, he stood next to me and we sang songs of praise to our God. He is mighty to say, right? All right. And listen, I'm rejoicing with you. I'm trying not to count too many chickens. But isn't that just a little bit of a, mm. hey, Mark, I know you've been praying. You've been preaching it. How about this? Mm. He restoreth my soul and gives me just enough to keep going. He leads me in paths, paths of righteousness for his namesake. Uh, I love that he leads me in paths. Does not mean he just points and lets us go. He goes with us on those paths. I took my father-in-law to the VA recently, and uh, it's over there in uh, Tampa by the uh, campus of USF, and it has been built on and built on and built on to the point that it is so labyrinthian. They're, they're just, you just drop bread, uh, as you know, just so you can find your way out, right? And, uh, and so I get there, and he's supposed to go see this specialist and this wing, and the, the guy at the front desk gives me a map, and it's like... And then God bless this man, I don't know what his name was, but he had a red vest on, he's a veteran, and he, he walks up to me and he says, having a hard time with the map? I was like, yeah. And he's like, can I walk you to where you're going today? I was like, come on. And so dad's in the chair and the red vest guy's out there and we go up the elevator and down the elevator and we turn this way and we're in this building now. And if, if I had had to find that place, my father would have never seen the doctor. That's just how it was going to happen. But dude in the red vest got me there, and dad got done, right? And I go to the same elevators I came up, not really paying attention as to how I had gotten there. And God bless him, he was there again. And red vest guy took me up, just did the whole thing. And I got back to my truck, and I thought to myself, this was a successful doctor visit, not because of me or dad, but it was because of the guy who went with us. And the God that we serve is a God who goes with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And he takes us on the path if we'll choose to follow him. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Uh, this psalm gets read most often at funerals is because of that verse, the shadow of death. It's actually just Hebrew for uh, the darkest valley, the valley of darkness that is the darkest in your life. It could be death, certainly is death most of the time. Uh, but uh, wherever we go, where it seems like God is not, it says there, I will fear what? No evil. Why? Again, it goes back to his presence. He's with us. He enables us with his presence to overcome our fears in life. It says his rod and his staff are a comfort to me. The shepherds, David knew this well, shepherds would carry two sticks. The rod was to defend the sheep with. When he talks about here in a few verses, uh, as he's trying to convince Saul to let him take on Goliath, uh, David's going to reference the fact that he took on a lion and a bear, and he grabbed them by the beard, and he struck them until they were dead. That's the rod, and that's the, the power of God to protect us in life. He carries the rod, but he also carries the staff, the crook stick. It's got the hook on the end. And this one's crucial, too, because it's the guide for the wayward sheep. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have gone our own way. Who's heard that before, right? And so that is the stick that he uses to yank us back into line with him. If we find the briars and the, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the pits of life, it's the stick, the, 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 the staff that he uses to pull us out and pull us back on to his path of righteousness. That's why they're a comfort. This is, this is the verse I understood the least and I'm so grateful to understand now in a different way. Verse 5 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So here's the picture. Goliath is out there. And the fight is about to begin. And what happens? Our father says, hey man, let me take that for you. Let me take the fight for you. And in my presence, you come in and just enjoy a banquet in my house. In the presence of your enemies, I'm here. And what should be this nerve-wracking, almost impossible experience in life becomes this smorgasbord of blessing that is God. It says, he anoints my head with oil. Lots of conversation about this. In the context, it probably is best to take this as what would happen as a custom in houses as people would come from long journeys to visit you for a meal. Um, they would wash your feet, okay? And then one of the next things they do is they take a horn of oil, a fragrant uh, oil, and they would pour it over your head, kind of as like a, I don't know, like a, you know, uh, disinfectant, you know, for your whole body, though. You kind of stunk. Let's make you smell a little better, brother, right? Uh, before you sit down at my table. And, 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 and here's what all the scholars say. It was like this luxurious gift from a host. It, I never sat this close, close enough in a plane to get this, uh, but, uh, uh, but I'm told on good authority that if you're in one of the nicer classes of plane rides, they'll give you hot towels to put your face in, right? Oh. And that's just extra. It's not like all you need is the chair and the plane, right? But, but this is God being extra, for those that he loves. The fight's not a problem for him. Sit down. Enjoy a meal. Let me anoint your head with oil and give you some extra. So much extra that the next line happens. My cup overflows. His grace to us in the midst of our darkest valleys is such that our cup can't hold it. Now that's a matter of perspective. Everybody get that? You can choose to see the cup overflowing. Or you could choose to see it empty. It's up to you. But I, can, I tell you this all the time. When someone asks you how you're doing, your right answer every time is better than I deserve. Because it's the truth. Matter of perspective. I'm almost done. <laughs> he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me cover the house first. Two stories to God's house, the earthly one and the heavenly one. We're in the basement right now. But if you are by faith, living in life with Jesus, you have entered God's house. That is your dwelling place, now and forever. The only change is you go from the basement to the penthouse. From here to the heaven he's prepared for us. David makes that claim. There's nowhere that I go that God is not, because I am always in his house. And he says this, this is my favorite part. He says, goodness and mercy shall follow me. He, he's being poetic here. He's personifying the traits of God himself. 
He's saying the goodness of God, the mercy of God. They're like my security detail. And everywhere I go in life, no matter what giants I face, God's goodness and his mercy go with me. Hey, have you met my friends? This is my, the goodness of my God and the mercy of my God. And they watch me wherever I go. So now, by his grace, may you and I face our giants, conquer our fears, knowing that God is our shepherd. Jesus goes on in John chapter 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. If we have by faith received what only Jesus could give, then we are members of his household. And there is no need to be fearful, no need to be anxious. May we see as he sees, may we go as he leads, and may we have victory in life. Will you stand with me as I pray for us today? If you need to come and talk, I'll be up here for a few minutes after. I know we got a meeting for our Greece and Turkey trip right after this, but if you need to talk with me or pray with one of our prayer partners, I'd love to have that happen for you today. So come and make that happen. Let me pray for us. Hey, God in heaven, uh, your grace uh, is something that I want to fall into. Uh, every day, your mercies are new every morning, and your faithfulness is sure. So God, as, as I walk through life, as my friends and I uh, face whatever we have to face. Uh, thanks for being there in every situation, the little things and then the things that are way too big, the stuff that scare us, scares us so bad that we can hardly move. <laughs> uh, we we uh, can't remember the truth about you and, and what you've done for us. Help us, God, in those moments to recall that um, you're our shepherd, your rod and, and your staff protect and provide for us. Um, You'll give us just uh, uh, that, that, that nudge that we need to restore our souls. You'll lead us, if we'll only follow you, uh, to what uh, you have for us, the, the necessities of whatever we face you have, if we'll only follow. Grant us, God, faith, not fear. I pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. amen.